0: Fuck's sake. Sake. For fuck's for sake. For fuck's sake. And thank you for that charming introduction. Welcome to the first real episode of FFS, the show where we talk about what works and what doesn't and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Dan Hugo. First, I'd like to thank once again if you heard Show Zero, where I introduced some of these notions. I also introduced my cast of players in the intro theme there. Music brought to you by Dan Gunn, a colleague of mine from Palm when we were working on the pre back in the day. One of my classmates, Phil, two of my Intel colleagues, Pete and Brian, and a colleague from Intel Times, but who was, had departed Intel and worked at a related company, uh, mark. I'm not giving their last names here just because I didn't really ask if they wanted full attribution, but I will check with them and surely you will hear them again until I find some other people to mix it up. And I will talk more about that in what I call the meta episodes, the show about the show, so to speak. So let's get right to it. You probably notice from the title of this episode. Today we're going to be talking about the last mile and the downtown project in Las Vegas. Those are actually related as far as I will describe. And I would first like to disclaim concerns you may have about the recent passing of Tony Shea, who was a fairly well-known Las Vegas entrepreneur, to say the least. Uh, he passed away on this, uh, November 28th. Today is December 21st. So some, some time has passed. Uh, probably not enough for some. Uh, this is not a discussion about Tony, per se. Uh, certainly he was the absolutely dominant driving force of the Downtown Project, but uh, this is more about the execution of the project overall. So if there's a discussion about Tony some other time, that may be the case. But today we're introducing what I call topic arcs. So me talking about this right now is a good introduction. It's a starting point, a seed. But I certainly don't want this to be the ending of that discussion, uh, whether or not Tony is involved. Uh, I never knew Tony, to further disclaim. I had one 15-second conversation with him very briefly. Other than that, I really had zero interaction, and I was never involved with Downtown Project, as I will describe. I was only a spectator. So, let's start out with the last mile. Typically, the last mile is a Logistics term uh, has to do with delivery of services from a hub to a destination. So package delivery, services like electricity, water, certainly packages, uh, internet. Did I say those? Um, Anytime you're the recipient of something physical, again, a good or a service, usually a service, it's that literally the last mile or kilometer to get to your curb, or your door. You'll hear this talked about sometimes for um, fiber, cable modem certainly, but for uh, optical fiber, that's sometimes called dark fiber. And I would assert that the last mile now, especially during 2020, includes a lot of things that are delivered virtually or as data, so services and content that you receive via your internet connection, whether it's wireless or cable or DSL or optical, there's probably other ways, Some, probably some copper users, DSL and or modem, so anybody out there using POTS, plain old telephony services, more power to you. Uh, I myself have a cable modem, for what that's worth. So, so to me, the last mile describes uh, the the, rec- the receipt of these goods and services, however they get to you. So, why is this interesting? Let me tell you. So, what works? The clearly, the technology we have today makes package tracking and scheduling and returns and certainly reviews (laughs) much easier or less painful, I suppose you could say, than even five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly. So if you were getting cable, the cable guy, the movie or the real life incarnation, Or the same with telephony services, or, you know, they would schedule a time, usually a four, six, eight-hour window, and you would be expected to remain at home and wait. And that's no longer true for the most part. Uh, Quite often, the cable is already in place. uh, Provisioning takes place in the central office. So what works today with that part of the last mile? So much of the infrastructure has already been built out that... And so many tools exist to manage the operation of provisioning or assignment of new accounts or maintenance. Rolling a truck is not a gating factor for turning on service so often. Not going to say never, but. So it works today in the real world last mile. I will not go quite that far for package deliveries. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of problems there. That's what we'll get to on the other side. But generally speaking, the last mile, after so many years, is serviceable. It kind of works. And I think, this is my opinion, that certainly, if I can get a postal inspector or a cable person or anyone in in this last mile business to participate in this discussion, that would be great. Because I do have more to say. But this is only the seed. So... I'm going to take a sip of some tea here. You can probably hear my voice is arguing with me. Mmm, delightful. So, the last mile. It basically works. What does not work? Well, this is the holiday season. It's December 21st, like I said, uh, of 2020. It is the 21st century. Today, even though your electricity, your phone, your water, most of those last mile services that the old school services uh, arrive at some sort of a of, of an official entry point into a home or a residence apartment building, whatever somehow packages, not postal service packages, although those are also some sometimes a problem, but packages are left on a porch on a stoop, on a patio perhaps. Um, I've had instances where they've been thrown from a distance onto a patio. Um, they are left in the rain sometimes. They are left out in the open. Sometimes there, there are doorbell cameras uh, of people following a delivery vehicle and picking up the packages after they're delivered and probably continuing to do so in other videos. So what does not always work is the fact that the service provider of the last mile is not always a direct participant in the customer uh, service provider relationship, if that makes sense. So, for example, the cable guy might be... I'm using cable guy as a colloquialism, colloquialism... I need more tea. Uh, It's an old term, obviously, cable person. But whoever is going to come and uh, provision on-site cable services, check wiring, install a modem, check your router, these are all things that are possibly done by an employee of your cable service provider, uh, CenturyLink, Cox, um, whoever. I mean, these these are the ones in Las Vegas where I am. So you may have a, an employee who has a vested interest. I mean, he, he or she may not have a vested interest, but at least they work directly with the company. They will possibly continue a service relationship with you. They may be back next week or next year. So there's, there's some sort of a, of a continuity of interest. What, where that breaks down occasionally, and I will get to a couple of more examples that are relevant, when that's contracted out and you would see this back in the old days with uh, telephony services. Um, uh, my uncle was a lineman for the phone company. So he was an employee of the phone company. And as Dr. Johnny fever would tell you, you don't mess with the phone company if you're a WKRP fan. So those were the the old days. Uh, later, telephony services would be managed uh, wiring maintenance installation would be farmed out contracted out and so the person working on the wiring wasn't always and usually wasn't an employee of your local phone company so the last mile was now handed off to someone being paid as an external you know they could be swapped out based on a contract bids or whatever so eh, they get the job done move on to the next item on the day's uh, agenda. And then if you extend that to say uh, customer service, customer support, I'm getting my uh, bank balance from a mobile app. I'm ordering packages on Amazon. The customer service for the bank balance application may or may not be part of the bank itself. It may be a, uh, external development by an external contractor. Certainly Amazon has their own Amazon logistics services. They also work with other carriers. So so package delivery is a a great example because I'm sure most people have had to deal with this at some point. So what doesn't work in my experience, and I've had several, is that disconnect between what are probably And in most cases, definitely the best of intentions. Certainly, anyone who wants to send a customary package wants them to receive it. And if you have ordered a package or a service, if you are doing something as simple as checking your bank balance, your bank probably wants to provide you with the correct number. And the Amazon shipper or the third party who is shipping through Amazon or their various modes of 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 collecting their commissions, fees. Whoever wants to send you a package, they want to have a good experience uh, on their end and your end, right? So it's that intermediate service provider of the last mile service where things can go wrong. And I'm sure this will also uh, ring true if you've ever had food delivery, especially during the pandemic times. Uh, food delivery kind of <laughs> jumped into the scene in unexpected ways for some. Uh, there have been cases where food delivery was taking place without the restaurant or, you know, food food preparer, knowing that the person coming to pick up a delivery order was not the person who ordered the food. There was an intermediate that kind of stuck themselves in there. They call it a man in the middle attack. Well, this is a man in the middle delivery. So when you lose control of the customer experience then there is an opportunity for things to go awry. <clears throat> so so the last mile uh for the purposes of this uh, topic arc kicking off there are th- there are many things that work. There are a lot of positive things that have developed over the last decades about delivery of services over longer distances. Uh not everybody has internet connections and You know, sometimes there's a well to get water. Electricity is maybe not always running all the way out to every edge. But we've certainly come a long way. Same is true of internet and, uh, you know, satellite, internet, maybe cell phone, telephony services. So over time, more and more, I mean, we're not at 100%, but they're providing the provision of these services and then package delivery, U.S. mail delivery, and again, as I said, the U.S. mail is not perfect, but I—that's th- uh, going to be—that's going to be a whole other topic. I, I have—I have a lot to say about the U.S. Postal Service and how it has been managed or mismanaged over decades. But bottom line, the U.S. Postal Service as a carrier provides also the last mile service, probably a little bit more consistently to more places. There's a there's a responsibility outlined in our historical documents, but end of the day, uh, the last mile is generally improving. A lot of things don't work package tracking. Uh, I ordered a, an item a replacement item part for, uh, $12. I selected, uh, you know, normal shipping. And they sent it first class mail, which has no tracking whatsoever. And it's the holidays. And it's after the election. So we all know, or we may remember someday, how dramatic our Postal Service operations became. So there was no tracking information. And I was like, well, I, I hope I get the package. And they said, yeah. <laughs> so it was sort of an open loop transaction. And we have the technology, and we have the capability to not only close the loop on various things, you know, cable, electricity, water, package delivery. Let's make sure that package is not just left out in the open. Let's make sure it actually gets into the hands of the person that ordered it. Make sure that this, the person who sent it, the person who arranged for services, make sure that they get a status update. And these are a lot of these tools are in place, like I said. So a lot of these things are working. They're not perfect. The customer service experience still needs a lot of work, in my opinion. And this is another area that probably would be a nice discussion, especially anyone who does front-end or user experience development. What do people expect? What are they not getting? So what do they expect, and then what are they lacking, I I suppose is the way to say it. And I'm going to get some more tea here. Hang on. With Manuka honey. So, so last mile, I, I don't want to harp on it too much because it's sort of one of those things that if it doesn't work, you just have to deal with it, work around it, file a ticket, call a support number, open a chat window with somebody. All these things need a lot of work in my opinion and it's generally an interesting topic. It's probably more a component of of some of the other things that we will talk about in the future that work and do not work because when things don't work you got to call somebody right so so this will figure in and that's why I wanted to start this off with that that topic because the last mile like I said not always the old version the new the new pieces that you're going to get however you get them i believe fall into that same general last mile topic. So what does that have to do with the downtown project in Las Vegas? Well, I will once again say I did not participate in the downtown project. I moved to Las Vegas from Silicon Valley in um, August 1st, officially, 2013, after a house fire, actually, and that's another story completely. Uh, I had been in Silicon Valley on and off, as in I Moved to Silicon Valley in 1993. I moved away in 2001 in August. <laughs> Perfect timing. I moved back in 2005, and then I moved to Las Vegas after the house fire in 2013. So I was, I was there for a nice chunk of time. Before that, I went to Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California. My class size was 151 freshmen, and I think 116 graduated so it was a small community of focused intellectual troublemakers. I'll put myself in the, in the latter category for sure. So small community working, you know, on our individual interest areas, certainly collaborating. Yeah, you know, we all took common classes. We were all in the same geographical area. Not always true today. And then I went on to Silicon Valley right when the recession was changing, so uh, improving <laughs> for most. And, you know, I got my start at a Super Mac, Super Mac Technologies. If you're a, an old Mac person from back in the day, if you were doing a page layout or the early days of QuickTime video, back in those days, pre-press. So Super Mac was a big thing there, but uh, I just got a hourly... QA job, the recession was was not easy. Everybody went to grad school. So my entryway into Silicon Valley was through QA, quality assurance. Got laid off, started working for Apple eventually, like two months later. And System 7, later PowerMax, the first generation of power, PC, Macintosh. And I went on to work at several other places and had a really interesting experience. So I learned how Silicon Valley operated. Uh, I worked at hardware companies, software companies. The only real internet company I worked at was salon.com. So these are all topics that will come up over the years uh, (laughs) in the past and in the future. But uh, so that's I'm just giving you some context. So when I moved to Las Vegas, it was right at maybe sort of the knee when the downtown project was really starting to get some traction from what I understand, right? I wasn't here before that. So August 1st, 2013. Um, And I will add that I I recently, so today, December 21st, um, I think it was about a month ago, or so, sometime in November, 2020, I read um, Amy Groth's book, Delivering Happiness. No, I'm sorry. That's Tony's book, which I have not read. Kingdom of Happiness, which was about Amy's experience sort of embedded in the downtown project. Um, If I recall correctly, her project as part of the downtown project was to write about it. So she had sort of the inside scoop on a few things. I never had that. I never interacted with that inner circle. I never hung out with the the Ogden crowd so much, um, aside from my visit to the downtown podcast. So, my entry, my peek through the window, initially into the into the downtown project, was via the downtown podcast, which was actually a video uh, show, a uh, you know, YouTube show recorded in an apartment at the Ogden, which was converted to sort of a big giant high-rise startup house. (laughs) So most of the people participating in the Vegas Tech Fund, the startups part of the downtown project, not all, not, I don't even know what the fraction is, but there were several people that could run into each other, collaborate in the Ogden. And one of the one of the apartments was the set for the downtown podcast. So I used to go down there. I think it was Wednesday nights. Um, I personally live in the city of Las Vegas proper, uh, but up north in a residential area. So I sometimes tell people I go to Vegas. (laughs) It's a short drive. So I got to witness the downtown project, but because I was not actually downtown, I was physically distanced, and then I never actually participated. So I'm providing some context here for, for my vantage point. So as I get to know people in the context of that podcast and of the after show visits to the Gold Spike or La Comita, eventually going to the Wednesday night Dinners before the podcast at Work in Progress, which was a co-working space. Hanging out, hanging around downtown, there was uh, coffee shops, and um, right around that time, the Container Park was about to open. I think it opened for New Year's Eve, two thousand thirteen. I think. So, I was I was kind of able to witness, but again, from a from a safe distance the the coming of age of the downtown project. Uh, Before this time frame, it was certainly moving. It was starting, but from everything I read, you know, and at the time, uh, the feeling that I have today is that I was kind of in that knee or the elbow. So initially, I was I was intrigued, and I started talking to everybody. It didn't hurt. That I moved to downtown, or that I moved to Las Vegas, and I experienced the people participating in the downtown project having moved from Silicon Valley to Las Vegas. I did get quizzical looks occasionally. Uh, you moved here from Las Vegas, uh, from Silicon Valley. So that was an odd direction for, 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 which was, you know, retrospectively, that's what several people did. That Tony moved to Vegas not directly it was it was some time before that but he had a link exchange and and initially I believe invested in Zappos while he was still in San Francisco so he was in the Bay Area moved to Vegas and as did other people so looking back I don't know why that reaction was was odd to me anyway it was it, it gave me some weird notoriety that I would I guess I would swoop in and hang out and talk to people. And then I got a job with Intel. So I moved to Vegas after this house fire and there was a little bit of chaos as you probably expect. And got a job with uh, a former Palm colleague, not Dan Gunn, somebody else. They needed somebody to work for Intel who could travel. So who could do engineering and talk to people and uh, participate in things like hackathons and, and other engagement in different parts of the world. So moved here in August 2013, got to know people, went to the Downtown Podcast, getting to know more and more people, checking out the social scene, more and more people, adding to LinkedIn, meeting a bunch of people after the Downtown Podcast and and the events that ensued after job offer January of uh, 2014 start working February travel to Ireland in April I think it was for five weeks and that was generally my, you know, one of the reasons I was distanced was I was traveling for Intel which meant when I was in town, I mean I was it was my weekend, whichever days they were I would shoot downtown and see what's going on and talk to people and I'm the Intel guy. So a lot of people would tell me about their projects and I would talk to people about how things were working and how things were going. And I would attend the downtown lowdown. I would, uh, well, the downtown podcast still, the, the Wednesday dinner. If I was, I was usually in town in the middle of the week. So I still was able to observe and form my opinions, but I also was able to meet people who, From whom I would love to hear as they look back, as I am now, at what the Downtown Project did and didn't do, and again, what worked and what didn't. So, in the context of my college experience and my Silicon Valley experience, I think what worked about the Downtown Project was the the formation of this community. Even though it was somewhat contrived, as in it didn't just spring up around uh, the garage of Hewlett and Packard, or Steve and Steve. It didn't. Uh, it didn't gel around Stanford or around Berkeley or around. Well, Harvey Mudd. <laughs> as it happens, when I moved here, <clears throat> I think I don't know if it was U.S. News and World Reports, but. There was a well-known or well-regarded magazine that suggested that three educational institutes at the institutions (laughs) at the top of the list of academic contributions to the success of Silicon Valley, uh, Stanford, Berkeley, Harvey Mudd College. And that even shocked me. So once again wait, you moved here from Silicon Valley and you went to Harvard College and now you're working for Intel, which isn't even in Vegas, so they're having you live here. but you So there was, there was a lot of things that got me some attention that enabled me to have these discussions with people, some sometimes frankly. Uh, and I was just curious to see how things worked. And since I wasn't living here, why not? So the things that worked were, and I will say, um, I'm going to have a link in the show notes, September of 2014, I think that's the date on the video, Bambi Francisco came and gave a talk at a tech cocktail event. It was very interesting. It was about um, the building blocks for for forming a tech hub. And she was focused on Oakland, where she, I assume she, while well, she lived in that area, I don't know if she still does, this many, six years later. So she had eight points, eight Required building blocks for the formation of a tech hub, and she was focused on on Oakland. I usually simplify it to four more more uh, coarse pillars. So I will let you uh, watch her 20 minute video about the eight building blocks. <clears throat> but I have kind of my own version, which I've heard other people talk say too. But her her description was very good, so do watch it. Bambi founded uh, Vader. V a t o r, and not a uh, not an unrecognized name in the business and tech industry back then, possibly still now. And it's too many, too many names. But she gave this talk, and it was I I thought it was interesting. So I'm going to give the four versions, the four pillars in my version of what I think makes up a tech hub or a startup city, if you will. Uh, but do check out her video with, with her more granular eight. Uh, the four that I would propose are uh, community, support from the city or a local government. So it could be a county, cities, multiple cities, or the state, of course. Um, so community, support from local government or governments, a access to capital, and a relationship with local academic uh, uh, institutions. I don't like that word, but I'm hanging up on it. The local universities. Um, it doesn't have to be universities; it could be colleges, it could be community colleges, it could be trade schools. You know, the, so academia. So those four things. And if you don't have those four things, then I would I would suggest the hill to climb is that much steeper if you are trying to convert or grow a geographical area into a tech hub. So when I moved here, I'll, quite often I would hear, so what, what would it take to be Silicon Valley? And I thought that was a almost impossible to answer question. Which I think it still is. So so the things that work, though. So in the context that I just gave, the things that worked—the community aspect certainly is very. Uh, it reminded me quite a bit of my Harvey Mudd days. So it was a lot of younger people, or acting young, if you will. They came to live in Las Vegas, which is kind of has a party atmosphere, anyway, historically. So they came here. It's uh It was a sort of a. Enclave that was encouraging people to work within it. The return on community aspect. And if you read Amy's book, she gets into that a lot more. Uh, or you can read, I'm sure many people have talked about it, Return on Community. So there was an encouragement to not only join the community, but to work within it. And then access to capital. Well, the Vegas Tech Fund was, I believe, $50 million for VTF investment, and there were some other monies for local like retail investment restaurants and, and other local storefronts. and then a chunk of money for real estate. That's that's another story. So so downtown project, as far as uh, encouraging these startups, in particular the Vegas Tech fund startups, they had, again, the community, the downtown project. They had support from the city, certainly. Probably the state. I didn't really pay that close attention since I wasn't directly involved again. But certainly the city of Las Vegas was fairly excited at the, the opportunities that might arise from having a strong tech hub downtown. Uh, access to capital. Probably having more access to different capital would have been better. And, and I believe there were smaller participants. Maybe in smaller rounds, or certainly companies in, in California, the, the Sand Hill crowd invested in a couple of things. You could tell because usually they would move, <laughs> they would leave, so um, for heading for Silicon Valley. So, and then the the connection to a to local academia, and that was not as great, which I'll get into in the what doesn't work. So when I arrived here again. Things were just starting to get some traction. There, was a, there were a lot of people visiting. It was a lot of energy. The downtown lowdown was, like a, I think it was a monthly status update with food and drink and good times, very celebratory. And that was a that was thing that works and, and also did not work about the downtown project. There was a lot of social... And I think uh, one, of the, one of the members of a small, um, they were UNLV graduate, like very recent graduates, or maybe they were just graduating at the time. I think they put it best. Uh, we don't have time to go to all these social events because we are working on our startup. That's almost a word-for-word quote, but that's essentially the, the take-home is that you can't possibly party all the time and so I, I used to tell people, I live far enough away that I'm not tempted <laughs> to do that. And it was helpful to me personally because, hey, I, you know, in my college days, you know, college is a party on Fridays, especially at Harvey Mudd. We, we were working like crazy. And so the, the notion of like taking off a Friday night, not doing homework for once and hanging out with your friends or doing a donut rally <laughs> or or something worse, and because it was a we had a similar community where we were mostly staying on campus, mostly hanging out with friends on campus or walking distance, so it tended to be safer and it tended to be kind of reinforcing your relationships with your colleagues when it came time to get homework help and whatnot so so that aspect of the downtown project was to me was uh not so much a threat to productivity and success as it probably was. In reality and because it didn't I, I was doing my job either way right so I would I would get on a plane on Thursday or Friday and I would be back on Monday or Tuesday and continue you know rinse repeat and then uh, several times I would depart for other countries or, or weeks of, of uh, travel so to me coming to Vegas it was on my weekends so when I was observing these things I could definitely see There was some value, but also some distraction. So that's a nice segue into what I think did not work. And when I'm using the past tense here, because um, while the downtown project is physically, uh, it's probably under a new, I think it's a new name, where it's focused more on the properties. I have no idea what the state of the Vegas Tech Fund is. So I, I don't know if they're still funding new investments. Certainly, they, there may be investments that are ongoing from when they initially invested. No idea. That's a, that's a topic I would love to discuss because I'd love to know where things actually are. But from outside, I, I know a lot of people who departed to go to greener pastures or to take their idea to a greener pasture or to stop what they were doing and do something else somewhere else. Some people stayed, so it's a mixed bag certainly you cannot walk along Fremont or Carson or sixth or fourth and run into 10 people from 10 different startups and you won't walk into the work in progress and see the the logos of companies painted on the wall and know the people that are at those companies. It's not the same, not like those days. So there was, there was an egress um, I won't get into some of the the fairly sad stories that's for another time, but there were a couple of there were a couple of sad endings for some people that were not having a good time but structurally, the downtown project what did not work in my opinion from my observations that last mile aha here's where the connection comes in so. I do not doubt for a moment that the best intentions were at the top of the plan to bring people to the downtown project, to have them move to Vegas, to have them move to the downtown area, to become a part of the community, to participate in the return on community. Best intentions. And as the recipient, you know, the last mile is obviously not to your curb or your, your residence, but it's uh, you physically going there, right? So the last mile is really when you get here. But then, what happened? Again, observation from outside, from what I've been told, from what I watched happen. It appears that just like those packages getting left on the porch or the or the stoop. Or in the rain. That there wasn't always a nice transfer of intent and we'll say energy. That's kind of a maybe a hippie term, but (laughs) there wasn't that same level of uh, engagement along the way, along that path of last mile. So that while someone may have come here themselves or with their team or maybe with families to pursue a dream for which they received some funding and perhaps they were assured or it was suggested or maybe promised even don't know that there would be mentoring and co-working and collaboration and access and introductions and all of the things that are fairly normal if you participate in a tech stars or yc or any number of other you know colleges a lot of colleges and universities have accelerators or incubator programs. Certainly, if you were in Silicon Valley, you could, you could be sitting in a coffee shop. And I used, to, I used to jokingly say, if you said, I have this idea, everything would be quiet. All of a sudden, everybody would kind of lean over. So I think that was the expectation here in Las Vegas when you would move your idea into the downtown project ecosystem. So that last mile, to me, was where things started breaking down, which ultimately led to a lot of, <clears throat> what I would say, eh, dissatisfaction is probably the, mo- the best generic term. So anecdotally, there were, you know, accusations of, uh, hey, my idea was implemented by somebody else who knew what I was working on, or hey i was told that i would get mentoring and it was never really useful or effective or one of the one of the real downsides i thought that i observed was the the downtown project was was creating this ecosystem community of smart people motivated with ideas that they were they were executing on but there was there wasn't really like a It can be left organic uh, happenstance, I suppose. But, you know, the the example I give here is the uh, LaunchKey startup. Anybody who is using or building an internet platform of any kind that needed to have um, user authentication services, why would they not work with LaunchKey? If... For no other for no other reason than you could go and speak to them, right? You know they're probably sitting two tables away at the coffee shop, or you know they they were they were in town, they were part they were on the team, right? So I kind of want to blame if I'm going to blame if I'm going to use that word this the the shift to a holacracy, uh organizational structure, but I, I don't know if that's an, a legitimate reason or if we were to do a do a forensic analysis which i hope we will actually you know is that what actually happened or was it just a straight culture mismatch um when i was in silicon valley certainly i did not move to silicon valley in 1993 and go looking for the wednesday dinner or a podcast not only because they didn't exist but that was not the the culture there was very entrepreneurial but also very sort of micro networking. So I I always tell people after I actually, in fact, side note, I was looking for work at the time after the, the Bush era recession was kind of winding down. The dot-com boom was just getting a, getting to a nice fast walking pace so I was I was sitting at my at Harvey Mudd College, actually, working over the summer after I graduated. And a uh, true story, I was copying graduation videotapes. That was one of my pay-the-rent gigs. So I got on the phone with uh, someone named Bruce Burkoff, who had hired people from my college in years past. And he and Andrew Eisner would uh, always take referrals and try to bring people up to the Silicon Valley. So that was my first job at super Mac was a result of, I want to say three or four years worth of people from my school, you know, two or three each year working for whether at, um, ZD labs or later super Mac working for these two characters. (laughs) And so that was my, my foot in the door, literally. And from there, Uh, I will tell you right now, my second job was because of Andrew Eisner, because I got laid off. Andrew Eisner referred me to Storm Technologies. That was a very short-term contract gig. Got a job at Apple. How did that happen? Dave Duran from SuperMac forwarded my resume. Um, The list goes on, right? I can uh, not not on the spot right now, but I could could probably very easily name the referral. Terry, Terry Berry. To work at Truevision, um, Bruce again <laughs> to work at uh, Umax and SEM Microsystems. So people I met, you know, years later I would run into, and I would it was definitely a resume referral culture, which brings me back to what I think was not working here in the downtown project, in that window was. While people were certainly networking, they were certainly talking the community was almost um, like a pre-built. It didn't require the the care and feeding that making your own network required. Not to say that people weren't networking themselves, but like I didn't move to Silicon Valley and say, okay, all I have to do is go outside and I'm going to run into people. It was really like I am on fertile ground, but I got to start planting some seeds. And I did, and it worked out for me. So I, I almost wonder if there was uh, the presumption of the serendipitous collisions being enough to fuel this this formation of the community interconnects, right? Community is great. You know, if you know your neighbors and you know your, your letter carrier delivering the mail for that last mile, you know your librarian, you know the coffee shop barista, you you see these people and they recognize you and that's fine but you know who would you ask to help you with a problem right like hey i have a startup project here i'm looking for employees or i'm looking for someone to provide a service or you know a ui developer or a web developer or i need to do user authorization or i need to help people move out of their homes and move to the downtown project right so there i think that was just one of the missing pieces and as well, the connection to the university UNLV was extremely tenuous. I don't even know if "tenuous" needs an adverb, <laughs> but um, I didn't. F- when I okay, I was asked by a few people because I was here from Silicon Valley, so they always, you know, hey, what do we what do we need to do to be Silicon Valley? And I had a long answer and I'll get into that some other time, <clears throat> but one of the, one of the trickiest topics to me, how are we going to hire people? So when you invite entrepreneurs to move to a city, so I, the visualization I would describe fill a room, 50, a hundred people more, who knows with with entrepreneurs, right? You have moved to the downtown project. you have relocated yourself, your partners, your colleagues, your family members, perhaps. Welcome. Let us know if you need anything <laughs> or don't. And uh, suddenly they start looking around at each other and they say, Hey, does anybody want to work for me? <laughs> and nobody says yes, because they all have their own thing to work on. So that sound I'm I'm not making light of it, but that really is the situation that they found themselves in. The people that I spoke about with this, spoke with about this. How do we hire people? Where do we go? Are people willing to move here? It's a very tenuous job market if you were in tech. Very startup, you know, Silicon Valley, three times the cost of living, give or take, but three times the jobs or more. And the salaries commensurate with the cost of living, give or take. Austin, Research Triangle, even New York, sort of. Silicon Alley. Uh, Other countries moved to Dublin. They got their own Silicon Valley. Moved to Shenzhen. They are, (laughs) I think it's hard not to realize that they are the Silicon Valley of China, possibly of Asia. So, yeah, what are you going to do when you... When you have your company here and you can't hire, so I went to UNLV. I met with the dean of the engineering college. I described a program we had at Harvey Mudd called the clinic program. He was familiar. He liked the idea. I connected our my alumni uh, my my alma mater. Uh, my, was any my none of my alumni colleagues were here but there was a professor who was joining UNLV from Harvey Mudd, computer science, and I was able to get the, the business development person from my college because they had grown the clinic program beyond engineering. So he got on a conference call. We had a nice discussion with business development, the dean of the college, how to turn senior projects into sponsored, third-party, patentable, you know, technology-sharing endeavors. This would basically provide a basis for not only a reasonably priced workforce, that is, you're paying students for their senior project, which you are going to give them, but you're getting potential employees when they graduate, possible new development technology, um, new technology development. Let's switch a word now and then, why not? So it was like a win win, right? That that was always the way the clinic program operated Harvey Mudd. So to me, that was a reasonable bridge between downtown project companies, startups, and local academia. Let's just say that also did not work. <laughs> um, and that is that is something to talk about in another show more specifically, in terms of generally how do you operate a Community where you are trying to draw from academia, so college students and younger. I don't know, well, younger. It's not always age, but yeah. How do you how do you uh, <laughs> farm farm to a company? If if Vegas was the farm team, right? If you got funded, you go to Silicon Valley. So the farm team. How do you build up the farm team? Right? How do you get? talent to realize, to connect, to kind of look in the direction of local, or as one engineering graduate from UNOV told me, all the good engineers go to Silicon Valley. So right away, if that was the operating assumption, how are you going to get that talent to stick around and participate in these startups? So to me, that was probably one of the I don't want a gaping hole. <laughs> I don't want to be too negative but so that that seemed to be a, a an extremely weak component of the four pillars was that academic interaction uh local government was okay, community so the things were okay, but I have a feeling getting back to that last mile, I think the thing that has made the downtown project the topic of a discussion like the one I am having or starting right now is the fact that that last mile was left to chance. So if I'm going to build a community, a tech hub, and again, you can, and you should watch Bambi Francisco's presentation. I was there in person, by the way, it was kind of a, a little walk down memory lane. I remember her giving this presentation at the learning center the Learning, whatever it was, downtown, right near the Container Park, actually. So I was there for the Tech Cocktail event. Very interesting. If you are going to go down this road of building a tech hub, of turning a city or a part of a city, some sort of geographical region, shaped like a llama or whatever, if you're going to go through the exercise of doing it. You have to actually connect the dots, To the coin a phrase, and I believe that was the part left to chance in the downtown project execution, which ultimately led, ultimately led to so many of the people that I knew and spoke to directly, either shutting down, failing, which is not a bad word. Failing is part of succeeding. But uh, shutting down or failing uh, or just moving. Maybe they're maybe they're still executing their idea, or or they pivoted, but you know, downtown project wasn't the best fit, and I think it was like I said, I left a chance, and I believe that that is where we saw. And I, I'm leaving out some of the uh, some of the stuff that you might read about in articles recently. So just cut and dried. I think it was the last mile, the the lack of execution the lack of coherent connection. Serendipitous collisions are interesting. They are not the way to structure um, a community that you are trying to implement. Um, Organic development of a community, if anybody's into ecology, there's a climax community. So the terrain of Las Vegas in general is service industry, call centers, um, hospitality in general. That's, That's just the environment, right? That is the soil. That is the sidewalks. That is the bright lights. Everything here favors that, that Climax community. So to form a tech hub to clear out some space and to plant some seeds and crops that are not native to this area. You really have to water them, you have to tend to them, you have to make sure that they continue to grow, you have to harvest them, all the farm terminology that you wanna throw at it. And I believe that that was left to chance and that last mile is where Downtown Project failed. There's probably other places and that's why this is only the beginning of this topic arc. Downtown Project is one example of the formation of a tech hub. It doesn't even have to be a tech hub. If you want to turn a area, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, when did I, um, 2002, 2003, somewhere in there, decided while their major industries were electronics assembly, government contracting, semiconductors, and tourism, sure. Well, the tourism was kind of implied, but they literally researched and presented a report that those three areas happened to be the ones that the executives who were on the committee that wrote that report were in. But uh, they eventually got Genentech, and there was another company. They built buildings, so they had facilities. They built them near Arizona State University. So they had some science. They had connections to academia. UNLV, I'm sorry, <laughs> pardon me. U of A in Tucson has a medical school. So there was there was a pre-med base to operate from. The Maricopa County Community College infrastructure added training programs for lab technicians and other related jobs, right? So a jobs program aimed at the supporting roles required to implement this new biotech vertical in the Phoenix metropolitan area. So they basically had support from the local governments, Phoenix, Tempe, Chandler, you know, Maricopa County. They had connections to academia. They had access to capital. They had community. The uh, ASU Tempe area, that's very, uh, a lot of students, a lot of, uh, a lot of business, a lot of things going on. So the community one I can't really speak to directly, but I'm going to assume that ASU is huge. I think it has 60,000 students in the student body, either on or off campus. So there there was a hustle and bustle to draw from. And Tempe area, very young crowd, the access to the academia. So if you're going to drop in a a hub. Biotech is still tech, but <clears throat> not everybody's working on a laptop, right? But here in downtown project, a lot of people, laptops, coffee shops, uh, gold spike, no, no gambling machines, all beanbag chairs and tables. And you, know, you can go down there and work anytime you want. So the things were in place, but got to connect them. So last mile downtown project, I'm going to leave these two seeds planted. And I hope that in the future, hopefully not too distant future, I can convince some of my former friends and, Cutwell, friends, former colleagues who were here, some of them still are, but off doing their own things. But some of the people that I used to interact with and who were participating directly in the downtown project, I really hope I can have um, as guests on this show uh, further discussions about what they saw, what they felt worked and didn't, what they did about it, and then in the future, if you are thinking about doing this, if you're, if you're thinking, hmm, where I live, we could use more nerds. <laughs> we we have a co-working space, we have some uh, tables and chairs and a coffee shop, and we have uh, internet access. What else can we? What else do we need? So I think it's a great learning experience, um, and it's not like the infrastructure is still here, right? It's not like somebody destroyed it. So it's not not to say it could never kind of return, right? Anytime there's any uh, flooding or natural disaster, nature finds a way and the climax community of an area returns. And that might happen here. So I'm not poo-pooing. I'm not trying to be too negative. I'm not not pointing fingers other than the fact that um, I think the infrastructure could have been tended to with the goal of actually enabling the people who took the plunge and moved into this community. So, so the pieces were there. I just don't think they got the attention they needed, which meant the people that needed that, the pieces, also did not get the attention they needed. It's that last mile. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to have a meta show coming up, a meta episode about uh, some things like website, pardon me, (laughs) my allergies. Um, I set up a Discord server. We'll do some video streaming. We'll do live streamed podcasting, some video or audio. Uh, I'd like to encourage intelligent discussion. I really don't want to complain or go to negative, I think constructive discussion. Again, about what works and what doesn't and what we do about it. And to be honest, this is the third time I've made this show because I think I was complaining too much in the first two versions and I didn't like it. So I'd like to set the tone starting here, which again, that last mile kind of figures into that as well. You know, let's take a topic and figure out you know, what to keep and what to toss or what to fix. And the topic list is growing. I think I have about seven coming up. So this is the uh, first real episode of FFS, the exclamation one might uh, make when encountering the parts that don't work. But the goal is to discuss ways to change that. So thank you again for listening. Look forward to more participation and if you would like to contribute to the intro or outro, I, uh, I invite all to participate and be a part of this uh, discussion and production. Thank you so much. And if you are listening to this during the holidays of 2020, I hope they are happy and healthy. And if, if it's down the road, I hope we are over this pandemic and hope we're not on to the next one. Thank you very much.